Welcome to all those tuning in to yet another edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. This is the October retrospective version. As always, I'm here with Dr. Mike Crimmins. Hey, Zach. Mike, any initial any initial words no, just, of wisdom? Was, you just like, it was like a puzzler there. It was the October retrospective then means somebody has to calculate when it is now. So I'm not, I'm not providing a date now. Okay. Early, early November. Okay, good. That's excellent. No, so today we actually have quite a, quite a lot to talk about. October was pretty darn eventful. It was. Happy new water year. Happy new, happy new water year. Happy Halloween. October provided some interesting weather events, quite, uh, quite wet in the, in the Southwest. So we'll, we'll give an update on, on what happened in the last month. And we'll also talk about how that relates to the El Nino that continues to be one of the strongest on record at this date and, um, provide again, an, an update on seasonal precipitation forecasts and temperature forecasts for the upcoming winter. So to set this stage, Mike, um, looking at precipitation in October, percentiles uh, across the Southwest, we basically notched in at the top 33% across Arizona and and New Mexico with, in New Mexico actually, with some places even recording their their wettest wettest month on record. That's right. Yep. And many places uh, in Arizona as well and, and, and New Mexico were in their top top 10 percentile. And so it was a, it was a pretty uh, wet month. This October stands out, you know, so I've been here for about 15 years um, now, and this is probably one of the wettest Octobers I've seen here in Southern Arizona. And, you know, we're looking back at the data as you're sort of describing there, there's no indication of any place in the Southwest with some of our data sets logging a below average October precipitation value. Uh, tiny, tiny areas hit their average most of it, the region was, as you said, in that top third with uh, chunks of New Mexico and parts of Southern California and parts of Nevada actually recording their wettest Octobers on record. And so records going back to the early 1900s. Yeah. So here in, in Tucson, it was actually the eighth wettest on record. Pretty good. Yeah, not Pretty bad. Pretty good in a, you know, in a over a hundred year record. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take it. Um, and maybe that's a harbinger for what's to come, but we'll, we'll get into that. But there was a number of of storms, it seemed like every week it, we, we had one. And there was one in particular that I'd like to focus on because it was the first time I'd experienced it, but it was this cutoff low that came through uh, the Southwest in early October. Right. And then it sort of wandered westward and came back around. Yes, yes. And hit us again. Double, yeah. We I mean, double dipped on that one. I know. Talk about recycling. That's, I mean, really, really nice way of sort of using the weather twice down here. Let's talk a little bit about how that actually happened. Right. This was a, a low pressure system that took a, a pretty typical path. So these are, uh, it was a low pressure system that actually came out of the Gulf of Alaska, sort of uh, broke off of um, high sort of high latitude jet stream, carved its way down, basically this low pressure system was around the Canadian border with Washington. So Washington, British Columbia border on the 2nd of October. And it's not an unusual path for those to sort of dive directly south and kind of hug the coast as they come down here. So 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th of October, this low pressure system is dropping down through California, then wanders right overhead over uh, Arizona on the 7th. And then at this point, it's it's now broken away from the mean flow of the jet stream. The jet stream is very, very far north. And so when a, a low pressure system is on its own, 
as a cutoff low, it's not being sort of driven by a storm track that would be dictated by the jet stream. So it, it can wander around. Typically they'll, they'll fill in then because they're not being supported by energy aloft and sort of helping to sustain them or kick them along. Mm. So this um, low pressure system on 7th now starts to drift southeast and goes into northern Mexico. And basically it's now under these sort of weak steering currents of high pressure systems south of it and north of it off to its off to its northeast, start to sort of move it now towards the um, southwest, wanders across Baja on the 10th, and then it's back out in the Pacific Ocean again, kind of far south of the Southern California coast on the 12th. And then, you know, waiting for the weather to come in from the west again, it gets drawn back up into the weather, comes back ashore uh, in Southern California towards the middle of the, like the 13th or 14th, and then makes another pass across Southern California and then Arizona with another round of weather associated with it. So we can thank some of our above average, top third, wettest on average weather in the Southwest to one weather system <laughs> making a double pass on us. And, and this is also that same system. If you remember hearing about the, the violent thunderstorms, the heavy uh, rains and flash flooding in Southern California that washed out and buried cars on some of the interstates there and closed one of the major interstates was the second pass of this low pressure system as it was coming through Southern California. Does that happen quite a bit? Because again, like I said, this was the first time that I had experienced something where it recurved, where it yeah. broke off and it wandered around and it, and, it, and it came back. You don't see it every year, but I've seen it a couple times. And so we, we call it retrograding. Mm. It's when, when the weather goes the wrong direction or the, the direction that we don't expect it to sort of go sort of counterflow. Often what will happen is with these, these cutoff lows is that they're so weak or they're so moisture starved. You don't notice them. You don't notice some sort of wander by wander away and then maybe wander back overhead. It, it, I'm not saying it happens a lot, but I don't, it's not unprecedented. I think what was really interesting with this system is that it was able to tap into moisture twice. and um, From the Pacific. From, from the Pacific. The second time it came around, it was able to really draw in some nice, juicy subtropical air from the south, which is, again, at that point, there was still um, tropical storm and hurricane activity sort of not directly associated with it, but there was plenty of moisture to be able to be accessed. And how deep was that Pacific Ocean precipitation? Was it pulling it all the way up from the tropical or is it pulling from... It was pretty local. It's now off the Baja coast on the 12th of October and just south of there, it's juicy, right? I mean, this is this is the breeding ground of, it was still a very busy tropical storm hurricane season through October. We had, you know, several named storms, some very infamous named storms, but they didn't directly interact with the Southwest. They were wandering, they were, they were troubling Hawaii. Olaf <laughs> doesn't sound very menacing. I just think of that that uh snowman I, I just it's hard hard for me to to think of anything else with hearing the name olaf well, olaf was a major hurricane olaf was a major hurricane again hard to take seriously with but with it was further name. out uh, further west. further out and it actually ended up recurving and i believe it was the one that brought surf to uh, much of the pacific northwest and the coast of British Columbia. There was some news reports of surfers in British Columbia being really excited about some of the storm swells that were coming off of some of these storms. Not interacting with us, it took these little, this one in particular, this wandering low pressure system to be the the impetus and the, that factor of giving us these rounds of precipitation. Yeah, it was unusual. I wouldn't say un, I wouldn't say unprecedented. I certainly don't think you'll see it every year. I do think it was a bit of a combination of 
a lot of factors, including the uh, ensuing El Nino event that's underway. Okay, but before we get into the El Nino, you brought up something that uh, we, we should we should hit on, and that's the uh, the hurricanes. And it's been a it's been a very active hurricane season in the in the East Pacific and Central Pacific as well. In October, there were three hurricanes, two major hurricanes. There was uh, Marty, which was basically at the end of September. Then there was Olaf, as you just mentioned, that lasted between about the 15th and the 27th of October. And then the the, the big one, mm-hmm. the biggest one, I believe, on record in the Pacific, right? Uh, Patricia, which slammed into southern Mexico, yes. had uh, maximum winds of about 200 miles per hour, mm-hmm. major category Dare I say, category seven? <laughs> I knew no. you were going to do it. I knew category, you were going to Category it. five. I know. We, it's, it's Mike's Mike's favorite movie is category seven. I know. We, I tried been, to find it on Netflix, but I couldn't. I, I, well, it's. It, I think it was for for humanitarian reasons was taken off of offline. It it, it possibly is the worst movie ever made, but I enjoy those <laughs> I enjoy those kinds of films. What's interesting <laughs> about Patricia though is how big it was, and then I don't I don't believe it did the damage that people expected it to. No, I, it, was just, it was a remarkable storm on everything. It was, it was, I think all of us who follow the weather and we've been talking around here on campus, you know, watching this storm, all of us saw it pop up and it had been such a busy season, nobody paid any attention to it. And the forecast models at that point didn't think it was going to be much of anything. And then we all showed up to work the next day and said, did you see? I mean, it went from, you know, zero to a, a thousand miles an hour, um, not not literally, well, 200. zero to 200 miles an hour, it deepened explosively way, way faster, deeper into a peak magnitude than any of the forecast models even hinted at. I mean, it was so, not, not even the outliers, the forecast models were suggesting what it would do. I believe it's the strongest tropical cyclone ever recorded in the Western hemisphere. So, I mean, it bombed, I mean, it wasn't just the Pacific. It was the biggest, not biggest, but the strongest as far as the um, peak wind speeds and that central pressure of 879 millibars. Think about that, 879 millibars at sea level. Think about how far up a mountain you've actually got to hike to get to that that elevation, um, to have that drop in pressure. I mean, that's amazing hole in the atmosphere that's opened up at the surface, you know, kind of indicative of its strength. And that was largely or likely in part fed by the the pretty warm sea surface temperatures that are right, that are right there. Couldn't do it without it. Couldn't Absolutely. It. Those warm sea surface temperatures are the energy and having those other ingredients of the right atmospheric conditions above it, low shear. But they're, they're really anomalously warm right now. Yeah, you couldn't, could not do it without that. But I think to your point, though, about it not doing the damage um, that we expected was uh, due to a lot of the, the fact that it was a very sparsely populated area yeah. and a very, that- very um, compact core to the storm. I'm sure there's quite a bit of damage down there. We haven't, uh, it, but yeah, because it didn't strike the most populous area. I think the, the media coverage probably got a, rather bored with it really quickly. I, and I think that's it. I mean, if if you dig a little bit deeper, and I, I kind of did this in sort of um, looking through Twitter and some of the news reports, there, there's there's evidence of some fishing villages down there that were that were yeah. basically I mean, 200 miles an hour to is, the ground, and <clears throat> you know they were taken to the ground. And there's a there's a hurricane chaser from Southern California who goes and chases all these storms. Well, he happened to navigate this one perfectly right because it was a very small storm core like 15 20 miles wide and he tries to get right as the eye of the storm passes over so he gets the peak magnitude of the Mm -hmm. things and this thing was wobbling as it was coming on shore and so he had to get it just right and he found this little fishing village he rented a hotel room he (laughs) went to one of these interior rooms he has these little safe rooms for it 
And there's a really nice write-up on the Washington Post weather blog that talks about his experience there. And so he's in this concrete hotel and there's a video. I hadn't seen the video yet, but he talks about this storm coming on shore and how it peeled away wall after wall and floor after floor till it got down to where his the safe concrete was, shelter, the concrete shelter to the point where all the people in the hotel started cramming into wow. the rooms that he was in to the point where they had kids in there and they shoved a mattress over their head as they lost the roof to that floor. Wow. So, I mean, this is 200 mile an hour. It clearly had dropped by that point, but it's still 175 mile an hour winds. It's, you know, it's tornado force winds. Um, that are sustained and of a large magnitude. It clearly was disastrous for these areas and for these people, caused major flooding as it went inland and interacted with topography. But if it was a little bit further north, like uh, uh, Puerto Vallarta, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it could have been much, much worse. Yeah, well, I, I'm kind of interested. I don't know if you've read anything about why the forecast was missed the boat. So, I mean, three days, four days in advance, it, it, uh, you were saying that it, it yeah, wasn't I, expecting the it, you know, this, severity. There's been intensity. A, a lot of people writing on it and yeah. I haven't seen a real good sort of treatise on, on, on what was the missing component. Was it initialization? Weren't there, where there's not the right observations? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's going to be another, it's again, it's like with this El Nino event, there's so many interesting things that have evolved with it. These research questions are now sort of stacking up yeah. about like, It'll we be thought busy, it worked this way. Yeah, exactly. Busy, busy for the researchers. Busy next year. So yeah. mm-hmm. looking at the totals of the, of, of the hurricanes so far, if you look at the, the East Pacific as well as the Central Pacific, to, this season, 2015, has a total of 24 tropical storms, 15 hurricanes, and, and 10 major hurricanes. Those rank second only behind the 1992 season as the most tropical storms and hurricanes to date. And we still have you know a, a, close to a full month to go. So this, this year might tally as the, you know, the worst hurricane season on record. Yeah. And I think you're pointing out it does tail off quite a bit over this month, but even some of the forecasts are suggesting that the tropics are still busy in the specific out through the end of the month. Right. So in the East Pacific, there's been 12 hurricanes and seven major, major hurricanes. So major hurricane is a category three or greater in the Eastern Pacific basin, about eight and a half on average, uh, hurricanes and, you know, close to four, category three or greater major hurricanes. So we're, we're above that. And that was expected because again, the ENSO, the El Nino influence on that reduces wind shear, helps uh, stimulate uh, hurricane activity there. We also have very anomalously warm sea surface temperatures, which we've talked about before that are helping to, uh, to fuel that. So this is expected, but I, again, this is another, it's a superlative season so far. And maybe just a, 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 la- a last little sort of factoid on here was that the, the previous strongest hurricane on record was Hurricane Linda, which happened in 1997. Um, so another sort of El Nino, El Nino connection here. Its uh, record lowest central pressure was 902 millibars. As comparison, Patricia was 879. Wow. So <laughs> it's not like a shaving a couple of millibars off. It's like you yeah, know, catastrophic exploding it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's being so much lower. Before going into ENSO, is there anything else we want to say about October? I mean, we talked a little bit about it's it's been a very wet month, largely due to this one event that hit us twice. Yeah. Virtually all the recording stations are, are near average or, or above. Mm-hmm. We had a, a pretty eventful October. Anything else you want to say before we talk about ENSO? Uh, yeah, El Nino? Well, maybe to sort of segue into this is that we were coming into October and we were looking forward. And I think that, you know, you and I talked about last time was 
So what could October bring that we thought that maybe can sort of conditioned by El Nino? We knew the tropical storm season was going to be a, a potential player for us. And if we look back to those past big El Nino events, those tropical storms end up being sort of either make or break it for October. But this October, another strong El Nino event, the tropical storm part of the equation for the Southwest precip wasn't, wasn't really there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So even though we had active hurricane season, yeah. it's, it's not what fueled the October precipitation. Not, not really, not, not, you know, maybe indirectly with, but it was these other weather systems sort of in, in tapping into some of the subtropical moisture and just the inherently busyness of this October and that, that subtropical moisture that I think led to our um, above average precip. So it wasn't quite the pathway that I thought would play out. And, you know, we'd seen in these past Octobers that if you didn't get your tropical storms, they, they weren't necessarily going to show up wet, right? And our El Nino um, signal is quite weak, actually, this, this time of year. It's not typically a big player. Um, there's certainly fingerprints of it in, our, on, in the weather in the Northern Hemisphere right now, but it's not necessarily the main driver of everything that's sort of wandering by our door every morning. But it, it, it turned out to be a very wet October. So it's going to go into the record books in a, in a, a strong um, El Nino year as a wet October. So it's kind of a, yet a different sort of flavor and pathway to get there. I've received, and I'm, I'm guessing you've received a couple questions that are that are trying to attribute mm-hmm. storms to El Nino. Right. And, and, and I think this is going to happen more so as we move along into the winter. You know, was this event... An El Nino event. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it's a completely normal temptation, right? And I'm, I'm doing it this, I do the exact same thing is looking to every event and trying to sort of trace it back to, well, what caused that? And what we had that, whether or not El Nino was here. So on the one hand, we have an El, a strong El Nino. It's only coming behind the 97, 98. There is great anticipation that this will fall as a top three event. Perhaps it won't crest the 97, 98 as the strongest on record, uh, but it might surpass the 82, 83 event uh, and and come in at second, but likely in the in the in the top three. Absolutely, yeah. So within this context, you know there is there is a tendency to attribute these these weather events to yeah. El Nino, and it's worth I think saying what an El Nino. Well, maybe we don't want to go there. We don't want to say what an El Nino storm would look like. There is no exactly. El Nino storm. Yeah, it, right? and that's I think that's exactly it. So it's a it's a climate phenomenon. Right. It's it's our same thing that you know we get all crabby here in in southern Arizona and say you know did it monsoon at your house last night? Right. Um, boy, I got monsooned on on the way, and it's that's not it's not it's like a. Are we mis- gonna make an El Nino? What well, we got El Nino? But I've had that. I've I, you know, and it was. Um, I, you know, I was at a meeting recently where I was sort of introduced to give my talks, talking and said, and Mike's going to tell us about the El Nino storms that happened last night. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's, it's kind of equivalent. It's like a misappropriation of the term. El Nino, again, is a seasonal climate phenomenon. So it, it can't, it's not an individual storm event. And so that's, that's the thing. It's, it's still, it's kind of hard to get our heads around. There's a lot of parallels between this. And um, if people are familiar with the sort of you know, how does an extreme event relate to climate change? Yeah, exactly. And every weather event unfolds within a climate that's moving. And so in some respect, it is influenced, but you can't necessarily say that any one event is completely attributable to, let's say, climate change in this case. And it holds the same for 
El Nino storms. I mean, you're moving within a, a climate context. Yeah. Weather events unfold within a climate context. So That's there right. There is some connection there. Um, well, I think it actually becomes less challenging the further and further we get into the season. So let me try to explain what I mean by that is that since the connection with El Nino primarily sort of operates through uh, large scale circulation patterns and, and jet stream displacements and, you know, that, that kind of stuff, the jet stream and its importance on our weather patterns down here is just starting. Right. It's just getting into, you know, these transition season storms we've seen of the systems dropping out of the north. It's just the beginning of what we typically have when we go from summer to winter here. So as you get deeper and deeper into winter, the jet stream and the storm track become more and more important. And then that's when El Nino really, really shows its stuff. So October, we can go back and we, and I've been looking at the weather maps and you and I've been talking about it. You see fingerprints of El Nino. El Nino is clearly operating on the atmosphere, but there's a lot of other stuff going on at the same time. And the weather pattern is, is in transition. It's noisy. It's still got elements of summer, tropical storm stuff going on. It's got uh, elements of winter coming out of the north. And some of the systems, I think, have been pushed a little bit more by the El Nino system, the El Nino sort of background. Right. And some have operated as though El Nino isn't there, <laughs> there at all, right? Once we get into November, December, January, is the strength of that connection increases as we go through time, right? So, so this month we're in now, it's getting stronger, but it's still not as strong as it's going to be. By the time we get into January, February, March... We're in the core of it, and then you'll be able to see El Nino and its connection with the jet stream, and then you can really do some things like say, you know what, that jet stream pattern and that storm track really did look a whole lot like El Nino, and it's the fingerprints or the the push of El Nino on those weather systems, um, and its attribution is going to be much, much higher. It's not 100%, right. it's still weather. It makes it a little bit easier once you get into that that core season. So when we look back, let's let's fast forward to uh, March, and we average, as climatologists do, we mm-hmm. average all of these weather events together. What would be a sort of a canonical or typical El Nino signal? What what would we expect to see in terms of um, the atmospheric circulation, the the pattern of 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 the jet stream, the position and pattern of the jet stream? So so typically by that point, what we'll be looking for is a really strong jet stream that's displaced south that extends across the whole Pacific Ocean from all the way from the West Pacific across. And what that ends up doing is is it enhances the subtropical jet here and causes a wave pattern. We actually have this what we call a split in the jet stream. So there's this really enhanced southerly displaced storm track, parade of storms across the southern tier states. And then there's this ridge that pushes up north of it that goes up through Western Canada. And so that's sort of the classic. And so if you, if you maybe as an alternative is during a really strong La Nina, what we end up having is that jet stream, it's much further north of us. And we end up being underneath a very strong, broad ridge that pushes up all the way um, from south of us, pushes up far north. And that storm track is, is displaced to the north of us and going through the Pacific Northwest. So that really becomes very distinct once you get into the core of the winter season right. and even a little bit later. So we haven't seen that in October. I mean, this is, No, you just don't. You yeah. can't. Be- the, maybe the difference in the ENSO situation this year from past events is that we are at a, a relatively strong event this early and have been uh, for yeah. earlier than, than, than most in the historical record. That's a really good point. Yeah. And, and so you've seen weak splits in the jet stream right now, but there is kind of as big as or as strong as you can get this time of the year because the whole northern hemisphere has still got a hangover from summer 
and hasn't cooled off enough to to really drive a real strong jet stream pattern. That's a nice image. <laughs> I could I could see the northern hemisphere with its like forehead on its hand. Don't you? I mean, don't I always feel like there's there's a uh, living here in the desert southwest. There's like a a monsoon season hangover. You know, like we're in the throes of it. We're we're partying hard in Oct- in August, loving the storms, and then by September we're just like I can't do another storm. You know, I I gotta get I gotta get away from the humidity. I gotta get away from the heat. You know, it's only been in the last couple of weeks where I've started to like okay. Summer was awesome, but I'm done. I'm, re- I'm, I'm ready to move on. We sort of gave away a little bit of the, of the seasonal forecast, which is the expectation for increased precipitation on the southern tier of the U.S., actually all the way from you know, Southern California over to uh, Florida and, and, and parts of the, the, the southeast. Um, and again, that's, that's predominantly the impact of ENSO. Climate.gov did a, did a nice job with this. They they did the precipitation maps, the anomaly maps for all of the El Nino events since 1950. There's 20 of them. And on average, the, the tendencies are for above average precipitation. Mm-hmm. When you look at the details on a year on a case-by-case level, it's not quite as, as clear as that. So uh, the, the top two events, 97, 98, like we discussed before in, in 82, 83, very wet on the, the West Coast very wet across the southern tier of the U.S. But then if you look at some of the other uh, strong El Nino events, it's you know dry in California at times. Mm-hmm. It's dry in, in Arizona at times. So it's not, we've, and we've talked about this before, it's not a, a, def- a slam dunk in this particular case. And I've been going back and forth on sort of the, wanting to sort of temper expectations. I've kind of, I feel like I've come back around. I'm like, man, this may be the only big El Nino event of my career. So I feel, I feel like we got a whole hog on this thing now. <laughs> it's been a real challenge to temper expectations, but at the same time, try to communicate what is actually going on here, right? So when we say that not every El Nino event is a slam dunk and will be wet, I don't think it properly communicates the extent to which we feel like it actually, given that the past ones have failed us, the probability of that failure is actually pretty low, given the way that these probabilistic forecasts have been now issued by these same people. You know, these are people we work with at Climate Prediction Center and, and wanting to try to communicate uncertainty. But, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm, I pulled up the the forecast from last month, um, made on October 15th. And this is the forecast for January, February, March coming up. And it's the precipitation. And so it's, it's again, these probability anomalies, which we talk about. It has a 60% probability anomaly across um, Southern Arizona, which I doubt I will ever see that again in my career, <laughs> quite honestly, right? Yeah, and so it's about we, as high as it gets. It's about as high as it gets. And they actually, there's a new color on the map here for Southern California, which is the 70% probability anomaly. There is higher confidence this year than there exactly, is. Exactly, exactly. And it's as high right. confidence as you can have. Right. That's what you're communicating. That, I guess that's what I'm trying to yeah. say. And so, and, and what it, yes, it's, it's as good as it gets in an imperfect right. forecasting system. That's probabilistic. I mean, I guess, you know, I sort of led into this by bringing up the possibility that there are other cases. I guess that would be akin to, we shouldn't give as much airtime to the other cases as we are giving airtime to the above average. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's kind of it is, is, you know, now, now we're leaning into the event and I kind of feel like we've got to put our money where the mouth is. And and this is where, you know, these words are recorded and they'll be, they'll be remembered in infamy as this thing crashes and burns over the next couple of months. But here it is, putting it on, putting it on the table. 
So there's another part to this too, and that is there's mm-hmm. like what and so what is the forecast of what's the state of the sea surface temperatures mm-hmm. and wind anomalies in the Pacific Ocean? That is at 100% or near 100% that El Nino conditions will continue. It is there. It it's is not there. right. Right. So it's there now. It's 100%. Yep. Um, but you know, as we've gone through the summer and fall, it hasn't been there, but right. there has been the expectation. That forecast then is used to help forecast the second order, which is the impacts of that event, which is precipitation. And precipitation isn't influenced by obviously the jet stream and those sorts of things. And it's a little bit harder to to forecast because it's a second order impact. Yeah, so you're right. So that's actually a really good way of thinking about it was that you had to get one piece right first that you had an uncertainty to get to the next piece. Right. We've taken one of those pieces of uncertainty off the table now because we're at 100% confidence that El Nino will happen because it's happening. And then you move into this next order, which is short. These are pretty short-term forecasts at this point. They're only a couple months in advance. And they're for the core of the season when you'd expect those impacts to emerge. You know, these forecasts are not just analogs. They're not just looking at those past events. There's a lot of other moving parts and including the dynamical models. I think that's a really good point that this isn't just about playing statistical games with the historical record. That's right. Yeah. There's actually physical reasons and our knowledge of the physical system and how this all the systems all the all the parts fit together and push and pull on each other. Mm-hmm. There's a physical explanation for why we think that precipitation will be the chances are greater for it to be above average. Mm-hmm. Before ending this though, I think you know sometimes our purview gets really sort of focused on the southwest obviously because that's what we spend most of our time thinking about, but it's also worth pointing out about how global this phenomenon is. You know, the numbers that have been thrown around for the 97-98 event in terms of its economic cost during that year of climate-related events, but the numbers that have been thrown around are $45 billion during that episode. This is a global phenomenon, and I, I, I pulled up a figure to just illustrate this. You know, of course, in the Southwest in California, we get enhanced probabilities for, for precipitation, which translates into flooding and, and, and mudslides. Northern states in the Pacific Northwest has impacts related to warmer and, and drier and fisheries are disrupted. Gulf states become cool and wet and flooding can occur then. Fewer hurricanes occur in the Atlantic, more hurricanes occur in uh, East Pacific. Southern Brazil and Northern Brazil and Argentina and, and Paraguay can experience heavy rains. Peru and Chile experience fisheries disruptions from the changes in the sea surface temperatures, flooding in Ecuador. Australia is affected by drought and forest fires. Southeast Asia as well and and Australia receive less precipitation. So this is, there's global ramifications for this event and we'll we'll be, you know, witnessing this, I think, in in, in real time. And Yeah, that's such a good point because I think that, you know, we're talking about the sort of attribution of, well, what was... El Nino or not over the last 30 days here in the Southwest where, you know, as you pointed out, there's, there's been some really good reporting on, you know, the fires in Indonesia, if you've been hearing about any of that. So the air quality issues that have been, so the, it's very dry in um, the West Pacific in Indonesia and Southeast Asia right now because of the counter signal of this, which is there's below average precipitation occurring across that region. There are food shortages in Papua New Guinea right now. There is some reports here of, you know, Ethiopia is in one of the worst droughts it's seen in 30 years, all connected back to this global circulation pattern with much, much higher stakes and, and more important impacts than we're even seeing down here. So 
it's we're just kind of at the beginning of it right now. As we go forward, I think we're going to see more of these these impacts. But it is it is worth keeping in mind that these kinds of events can can happen and non they happen all the time. And, yeah, and not just in El Nino years, but right. Right. Maybe we'll be experiencing a little bit more of that this year, at least those areas that have an ENSO signal. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe one of our future podcasts, we can do some more of a, especially with the work you've been doing internationally, sort of a global look and a global tally of um, and check in on what's been going on with this event as we go. We can sometimes get in our mind that while it's a global phenomenon, it doesn't impact every place yeah. in the same way. And yeah. in fact, I think only 20 to 30% of the land surface is. Uh, has a statistically significant ENSO signal. So yeah. a lot of places don't, don't, they don't care about this. Yeah. Yep. We do here in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even then, yeah, even a lot of parts of the United States are kind of off the table for this event as well. I don't think Lincoln, Nebraska, <laughs> I don't think they do either. <laughs> it's a little warmer. <laughs> it's a tiny bit warmer. Yeah. Well, my, my family in Michigan is, I've already forecasted um, shorts weather on Christmas. So we'll see if that actually pans out. <laughs> that could be yet another bad forecast well, we have a, in my in We my do book. have a, a running poll of how much precipitation we think. Uh, yeah. There's already been some folks trying to change their numbers. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But you, we did, I have to point out, we didn't start the, t- the tallying till November 1st. I know November So 1. October was off, off the record. So we're, that, that, that's good. Because I would not have called this much rain in October. And boy, I hope November was as eventful as, as October. Sure gives us something to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Although I suppose if there was no events, it would be equally. Uh, yeah, um, we'll have something to talk about. Yeah. We'll have something to, to answer to or answer for uh, regardless. Okay. Thank you all for tuning in. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of CLEMIS, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with CLEMIS, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, research, outreach, and assessment specialist with Clemus. Okay, Mike, any parting shots? No. No, no. You're not the best color man in the, <laughs> no, in, the in the climate podcast world for nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you gotta give me more more loose time. <laughs>